Good evening. I'd like to welcome you to today's lecture. I'm Jill Dolan, the chair of the Public Lectures Committee here at Princeton. Just, I want to remind you of actually one or two upcoming events before we begin tonight. Uh, this semester series is actually going to conclude a week from today, Tuesday, December 7th, with a lecture slash performance by singer, songwriter, poet, Patti Smith, who, as you know, just won the National Book Award for her memoir, Just Kids. That promises to be quite a moving and interesting evening. I hope you'll be able to join us for it. It starts at 8 here in Makash 50 a week from today. Next semester, we also have a really interesting lineup of people from across various disciplines and arts movements. We'll, we'll be welcoming Robert Sapolsky, who's the Stanford neuroscientist, Sheila Blair, who chairs the FDIC, Nora Volko, 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 I'm sorry, director of the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and cartoonist Larry Gonick and Randall Monroe, among other speakers. You can look at uh, the calendar of our upcoming events online at lectures.princeton.edu, as many more events for the spring are in the process of being planned. Today's lecture is sponsored by the Spencer Trask Fund, which was founded in 1891 in honor of the successful financier who was one of Thomas Edison's original backers. This series presents eminent lecturers whose ideas emphasize the importance of the humanities. I have two last logistical notes. This evening we're going to do the Q&A session a little differently than we usually do. At the end of the lecture, we're going to have standing mics in either aisle, which we encourage you, if you do have questions, to line up behind. This will expedite our process, we think, and let more of you get your questions on the floor. If for some reason you can't make it to one of the standing mics, we'll also have one of our trusty students walking around with a handheld mic, so you can just wave if you'd like to use that instead. Also, I wanted to let you know that our guest tonight is willing to sign books after his lecture, and we're very thankful to have Chris from Labyrinth here who's selling books after tonight's talk. Now, I'm very pleased to introduce Peter Doherty, the director of Princeton University Press, who will in turn introduce today's speaker, Chip Kidd. Thank you all very much for coming. Peter. Uh, good evening, everyone. Uh, can you hear me? Good. Uh, I'm Peter Doherty. I am director of Princeton University Press, and I'm a member of the university's public lecture committee. Uh, and it's a great honor for me to introduce this evening's lecturer, the great and justly celebrated graphic designer, Chip Kidd. Among his other distinctions, Mr. Kidd is associate art director at Alfred A. Knopf, and I'm proud to say that we share the same business if not the same business card. Adding to my admiration, I, like him, was a great fan of Batman, although in my case it was back when Batman comics cost 12 cents a copy at the local drugstore. Mr. Kidd's uh, book jacket designs for Alfred A. Knopf have helped spawn a revolution in the art of American book packaging. His work has been featured in Vanity Fair, Newsweek, McSweeney's, Entertainment Weekly, The New Republic, Time, Graphis, New York, and ID magazines, and he is a regular contributor of visual commentary to the op-ed page of the New York Times. His first novel, The Cheese Monkeys, was a national bestseller and a New York Times notable book of the year. His first book, Batman Collected, was awarded the Design Distinction Award from ID magazine. He is the co-author and designer 
of the two-time two Eisner Award-winning Batman Animated. He is the editor-at-large for, uh, for Pantheon, where he has overseen the publication of Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth, uh, Dan Clow's David uh, Boring, and the definitive book of the art of Charles Schultz, Peanuts, designed, edited, and with commentary by Mr. Kidd. His designs have been uh, described as monstrously ugly by John Updike, apparently obvious by William Boyd, faithful flat earth rendering by Don DeLillo, surprisingly elegant by A.S. Mehta, a distinguished parochial comic book balding Episcopal priest by Alan Gurganis, two colors plus a sash by Martin Amos, and not a piece of hype, my book was lucky by Robert Hughes. Mr. Kidd is also the lead vocalist, percussionist, lyricist, and co-songwriter in Artbreak, a new band described as the new pornographers meet the new cars. Finally, recently he collaborated with Lisa Birnbach on True Prep, the follow-up to the 1980 bestseller, the official preppy handbook, but that certainly wouldn't interest anyone around here. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Chip Kidd. Thank you. <clears throat> Can you hear me? If you can't, you're deaf. <laughs> uh, I want to thank Pete so much for, for asking me to come here. I really appreciate it. It's a, it's a tremendous honor. And I hope as the evening progresses, he doesn't live to regret it. Um, I am a graphic designer, mostly dealing with book covers. And what I wanted to do tonight is to go through some basic precepts of graphic design and how it works and use examples of, of my work. Uh, this past month, October, uh, marked my 24th year at Alfred A. Knopf Publisher and Counting. Um, so uh, I've very much enjoyed all this work and what you're going to see is going to expand uh, span all those years from the beginning to now and um, there's been this whole thing about ebooks now and I'm not really going to talk about that except to say basically what you're going to be seeing all night are projections of light um, which is basically what ebook covers are so in that sense what you're seeing could either be pieces of paper or something on a screen, because you're looking at it on a screen. And the point is, it's really not about the medium, it's about the ideas and the concepts. So to start with, I went to uh, Penn State University from 1982 to 1986, and uh, was frankly lucky enough to get into the uh, graphic design program there, which was actually very selective. It's an enormous school. But basically, they would uh, only take uh, 18 uh, students a year into the major. And we had this wonderful and slightly insane, brilliant teacher uh, who headed the program called Lanny Semise. And he is basically the basis of my first novel, The Cheese Monkeys, which is a whole other subject. But one thing that he did one, uh, the, the first day of class, which I will never forget, is he came into the room and he went up to the blackboard and he, he drew, basically, he drew a picture of an apple and he wrote the word apple underneath. And he said, okay, listen up. 
He was mean. He said, you don't do this. You either say that or you show that, but you don't do both. Because basically, if you do that, you're treating your audience like a moron. And that's not a good thing to do. And this is a, a lesson that I've t taken with me all through my career. Um, I uh, almost by accident got a job as assistant to the art director of Knopf Books, uh, doing the jackets in the fall of 1986. It was a very different place back then, but everything was a different place back then. But um, basically, I kind of slowly worked my way through the ranks, not really rising above assistant to the art director, but to actually doing real book covers. And one of the first ones I was able to do was a novel called Geek Love by a woman named Catherine Dunn. And uh, we, ha we had a new editor-in-chief named Sonny Mehta, who is there to this day. And this was the first book that he acquired. And what it's, it's about a family of circus freaks who are basically, through genetic mutation, growing their own family of freaks, basically. And so I, wanted to, I went to work first on the lettering. Now, this, of, of course, is pre-computer, uh, when I was still putting pencil to paper. And um, the idea was that since there are three E's in the title, we're going to make them uh, freakish variations of each other. And, and then I used uh, fluorescent orange, which is something that I would never normally do. Now, the original uh, sketch for this cover had the type above, and then I pasted this, this really weird totemic mask underneath. Um, and uh, Sonny, to his great uh, credit, said, you know, I think we just need the lettering. You don't need to see it. You know, you've already showed the concept in the lettering. And he was absolutely right. And this is partly why he's a genius and still there and why I'm, I'm still there. And so this is how the cover went out. And it became something of this sort of weird sensation. Um, it was a couple years later that this whole concept was really I was really able to bring it uh, even more to the fore with two books that we literally published within the same year. And one was the autobiography of Katherine Hepburn, and the other was a biography of Marlena Dietrich by her daughter, uh, Maria, Riva, Maria Riva. And these were both very, very high-profile books. And for the Hepburn, we tried everything. Um, here was somebody whose career spanned, you know, from the 20s all the way up through on Golden Pond and, and beyond. What image do you use uh, to represent all of that? And the answer ultimately was none. Um, and what we decided to do, the Hepburn's on the left, the, the Dietrich's on the right, and so these are the extremes. Hepburn to us was about language. When you sat and you read that book, it really was like she was talking to you. Uh, very, very conversational. 
and the name is so recognizable, and it has this great sort of little iconic title. Dietrich, on the other hand, was image, 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 which frankly didn't change all that much, even though she had a long career as well. So here is the kind of epitome of telling and then showing for remarkably similar subject matter. Um, both of these were seen at the time as being completely risky. Um, we managed to, uh, to convince both of the authors to let us do it. And in hindsight, which is 2020, it was a no-brainer. I mean, these both were enormous successes. But um, these were seen as unconventional approaches at the time. Uh, in my senior year at Penn State, students have to take something called time and sequence. And it's actually very frustrating because really what you want to do is you just want to make something cool. Um, you know, and, but what uh, the teacher has you do is study the effects of literally time and sequence. And so you have to do assignments like show somebody how to do something in using 20 slides and no soundtrack. Uh, again, this was all pre-computer. Um, you do it in PowerPoint now. But um, so I, what this basically would in, impart into the students was the idea that whether it's a book or a magazine or even like a poster or poster campaign is that there's a sequence of events that unfold and that you have to be able to control that. And what I was able to apply this to quite amazingly was a series of books by Cormac McCarthy. Um, and we knew that this was going to be a series of three, but of course the first was All the Pretty Horses. Um, and McCarthy at the time, this would have been the early 90s, was seen basically as a writer's writer, uh, which is to say respected and not all that successful. Um, and he I, was in sort of like mid to late mid career and, and all the pretty horses lands on our desks and there was this great sort of murmur throughout the house that like, oh my God, like this is, this is a masterpiece and we have to try and reinvent him and we have to try and make the reading public understand that, that he's a, a truly terrific artist. So. This, frankly, was the first sketch that I did. And um, to me, it, it, it reminded me of an old black and white Western. So that's a sort of literal thing. But um, this is what I call the first of, of what I became to say, call my weird art half jackets, which is also known as separation of type and state. Um, the typography lives in its own place the image lives in its own place, and they have this peaceful coexistence because basically they don't have all that much to do with each other in terms of overlapping, etc. Um, the other thing about these books is they're called the Border Trilogy because each one of them is about uh, a character who's usually in Texas, and um, in order to grow and find themselves, they have to go south to the border to Mexico where they meet with all different kinds of um, circumstances and you know, both good and frankly, horrible. So basically your eye starts at the top 
and goes down and eventually crosses the border down into where the interesting stuff starts to happen. Now, I never meant for this cover to be anything other than black and white. And of course, we had the budget to do far more than black and white, but um, I didn't want to. And every now and then, uh, the editor, Gary Fitzgerald, would say, you thought about color? <laughs> to which I would say, yes, I thought about color. And uh, this is the way this is going to be. Um, and I amazingly got away with it. I mean, I was all of, what, 23? But um, finally, on the back cover, they made some of the headlines in aqua. Uh, and that seemed to make people happy. Now, the, the, the whole conceit of this, you know, even though I hadn't read the other books, I knew what the plan was. It's a trilogy. So for the second book, now this is years later, um, the crossing, now we're going to go into what we call in the trade duotone. Um, it is a sort of sepia. Uh, and again, it's a metaphor for a cattle drive, except they're all dead. Um, and so, all right, there's that. Now, then years later, we're going to go to the third, which is Cities of the Plain, and now color, full color. It's a sequence, and there's been time. And when you put them all together, you get, um, you get a color crescendo uh, that is starting one place and taking it to its logical conclusion. And I also, the, 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 the image from Cities of the Plain, again, that's a total cheat. Um, it looks totally apocalyptic, but it's, it's what they call a prairie fire, which farmers do to sort of like, as, as just part of the agricultural cycle. Um, but I loved the way that the flames mimicked the mane of the, of the horse of the first one. Okay. Um, at some point in the early 90s, I was called up to Sonny's office, and he said, you know, we have a new Michael Crichton novel, and uh, it's been optioned by Steven Spielberg, and we, um, you know, we think it's going to be a big deal, and I want you to think of Jaws. And I said, okay, why? And he said, because you need to come up with something that's as iconographic as the, uh, the whole visual system for Jaws, where you had the shark, and then you had the, the midline of the water, and the naked girl, and then the title at, at the top. And I was thinking, well, yeah, that'll be easy uh, to do again. Um, so, <laughs> so, of course, that's, I'm thinking of that subconsciously, but you can't think of that. I mean, you know, to actually try to do something like that is folly. So what I did instead was I went to the Museum of Natural History. Um, because Crichton, of course, very cleverly constructed this book to make it seem like you actually really could recon reconstitute these dinosaurs. And it sort of became to me of an issue of, well, how do we show them without really showing them? And so I got this book at the uh, Museum of Natural History because, okay, we're really going to look at a T-Rex. I mean, there's certain things that we have. We have the bones. So those are real and, you know, we, not imaginary. And we don't have to, to, to try and think about 
you really don't have to think about the skin. You don't have to think about what the real dinosaur looks like. That's Steven Spielberg's problem. It's not mine. Um, so what I want to do is sort of take the source material and make something out of it that seems to be like what a dinosaur could be, or at least the beginning of it, if you're trying to reconstitute it. And so I took a piece of tracing paper and I put it over the diagram of the dinosaur and I took out a pen <laughs> and I traced it. Kids in the audience, am I going too fast for you? <laughs> and I colored in the drawing and this is what I got. Um, and so I thought, all right, let's just, you know, be very straightforward about it. And this was the cover. And, um, you know, eventually everybody liked it. And um, sure enough, the book came out and was a huge, huge success. And somebody from Steven Spielberg's office calls me because my name is on the flap of the book, design and illustration by. And they said, you know, we'd like to buy the rights to this image just in case we might want to use it. <laughs> Crazy. Now, because I am on staff at Kanaf, I have no legal claim to this, and I know that. So what I have to do is refer them to our legal department, who then very cannily sells this to them outright for low five figures. Low <laughs> five figures. And uh, that's kind of the end of it. And, um, and then they have a special screening for us uh, at Knopf of the movie. And the first thing that we see, of course, is this. And um, this obviously was the logo uh, for the movie. And it's also the logo for the park itself in the movie and for all the merchandise <laughs> in the park in the movie and also all the merchandise that's not in the park in the movie <laughs> that really exists in the real world that people pay lots of money for. Um, like this, etc., uh, etc. Et now, um, I'm not bitter. <laughs> and uh, basically, Sonny, my boss, you know, seeds most of the low five figures to me. Uh, which was very nice and lovely. Um, and that was sort of that story. And then it just kind of went on and on and on. And, and I, you know, I could spend many a, a drunken evening weeping, uh, but, but, but I don't because I'm just not that kind of person. But I went, on, um, I went online to, and just Googled Jurassic Park logo. logo and uh, I found this, which I thought was really great. Like somebody spray painted it like onto some police station or something, I don't know. But my favorite was this. Um, this I actually called from Pope Benedict's Facebook page. Uh, that is his right leg. 
uh, which I thought was awesome, uh, that he really does embrace the whole evolution thing after all. Uh, but wow, I mean, he even got the feet done and the whole bit, which I didn't bother with. Okay, um, this is something else entirely. I love the range of stuff that I work on. It is all over the place. And this guy, David Kessler, contacted me uh, two summers ago, and he wanted to do a book about, well, the book's original title was Sugar, Salt, Fat. Why America is Obese. Now, that's like music to a book designer's ears. You know, like, find just like the biggest, fattest schlub on the planet. It's sugar, salt, fat. You know, like from the back so they can't sue you. <laughs> and it would have been so much fun. Um, but then he decides, oh no, I'm going to call it the end of overeating. <laughs> and you're thinking, well, fuck. I mean, that's not, that's a very hard concept to illustrate. Um, so I started thinking about, all right, it's very hard to illustrate this concept of ending overeating, but I was standing in a delicatessen in New York uh, not too long after, and I saw this thing in, in the counter, and it was like, bing, aha, that's it. It's like something that's made to look healthy, but it's really, really not. So um, just visually what you're seeing is, you know, this is comparing and contrasting. Um, you know, you go into the delicatessen, and it's like, oh, I could get a chocolate muffin, but I think I'll get the carrot cake instead, because it's really healthy. <laughs> There's a carrot on it. <laughs> and it's like, no, that's a zillion calories. Eat the carrots. Um, so this came out last year, and this is actually a big bestseller, but um, uh, David Kessler, who's actually a sweetheart, um, called me like six months after the book came out, and he said, I finally figured out the jacket. <laughs> and I'm like, oh, really? I said, what did you figure out? And he said, this was successful because of the thick, creamy icing. It looks delicious. Good for you. Uh, poetry is a joy to work on because it's poetic. Um, although poets can be crazy, but that's all right. Uh, this was one of the first ones I did that was really, really fun. And um, employing the whole uh, metaphor thing, all you who sleep tonight, and I was, I was just paging through a book of art photography looking for something else. And this is sort of the story of my life, the serendipitous coming upon images where I came upon this amazing photograph from the 20s. And it's just like, oh my God, that's so perfect um, of, the, uh, of these utensils like tucked into this napkin to look like they're asleep. And, uh, and he really liked it and all of that. And um, it, it just gave a whole new meaning to spooning. Uh, okay. So I'm a big fan of like, I'd much rather suggest than again, tell or pound it into your head. 
Um, and then there's the whole concept of trying to be funny. Uh, I work for uh, several very high-profile humorists, um, the main of which is David Sedaris. And the first thing I did for him was naked. And, and he writes about, you know, he's in this nudist colony and, you know, because he doesn't want to go into his comfort zone, obviously, and blah, 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 blah. And so I wanted to make a book that you could take the pants off of. Uh, so basically, the jacket only goes up as far as the blue background of these, of these uh, boxers, right? And so, um, and obviously, you can tell that like, he's not a huge success yet, because look how small his name is. <laughs> it would never fly today. Too teeny. Anyway, so I wanted to make it like you want to yank down the shorts of this book. But um, what he's really getting at, though, is that it's not the naked of the skin, it's the naked of the soul and the naked of underneath. So when you do, you, um, you get an x-ray and, and you're, you're getting both more and less than what you want uh, by taking it off. And so you put them back on again. Now, Shortly afterwards, I, uh, I had lunch with him, and I quickly realized, you know what, he's not a boxer's kind of guy at all. <laughs> he's totally a briefs guy. Now, nothing happened. Uh, this, it, it's just lunch. But it's just something that I sensed. But anyway, so we're going to do the paperback, right? And so I just thought, you know, not only is he a briefs guy, but he's a briefs guy whose mom would write his name <laughs> in the pants. Um, she would so do that. Uh, and, um, and this totally got rejected by everybody because um, they thought it was too skeevy or uh, skivvy or something. Um, <laughs> that it's just, all of a sudden when it becomes briefs, it's too sexual, uh, which I thought was crazy, but there it goes. So, you know, there's lots of rejection in, in my life, believe me. Okay, uh, Augustine Burroughs is, as you probably know, the running with scissors guy, and I think he's great, and I did not get to work on running with scissors, but I did get to work on his subsequent book, which was called this. Now this is uh, his memoir about his stint in rehab. When he was in his 20s, he was an extremely successful Madison Avenue advertising executive and a completely raging alcoholic. Now, um, thanks to Mad Men, we know that this is redundant. <laughs> but this is not something that he thought applied to him. He thought everybody drank a fifth of scotch every night. I mean, don't you? Uh, so um, basically what his uh, co-workers did was an intervention, and they said, uh, you are going to rehab, or you will be fired and you will die. Now, um, what I decided to do with this is what I call the opposite of typography 101. In design school, Inevitably, I don't care where you go. Design, uh, typography number one, uh, 101, you will get an assignment to take a word and make it look like it says what it is. 
all right? Now, this is the opposite, because now we want to make the typography look like it's in denial. Um, this is the most low-tech solution you could possibly imagine. Um, I basically ran the typography through an Epson printer with water-soluble ink. I tacked it up on the wall. I took a bucket of water, and I threw it at it. And there it is. And uh, the printer did a terrific job. He did a spot gloss on where all the stuff was running. And this is how it went out. And this is a big number one bestseller. It's oh, an amazing book, by the way. Uh, and I have to say, I'm like the luckiest person in the world. Pretty much everything that I'm showing you, it's also, quote, the most amazing book. I mean, I, I don't often have to work on shit. But anyway, I mean, it happens. But that's not what this is about. So uh, Augustine is uh, waiting in an airport. His plane has been delayed. And so he hangs out in the uh, bookstore. And he's popular enough that they actually have his books for sale there. And so he's uh, casually sort of observing. And this uh, woman comes up to this. And she picks it up. And she squeezes her eyes. And then she takes it over to the counter. And she says, this one's Rowan. And the guy behind the counter says, I know, lady, they all came in that way. <laughs> OK, so then, uh, what, uh, six months later, Augustine calls me up. And he says, um, you want to hear the name of my new book? And I said, yes. He said, it's called this. And I said, oh my god, I know exactly what the cover should be. And he said, what? And I said, I'm not going to tell you. I'm a terrible lawyer for my work. There is no point in me trying to explain to you why these book jackets should work for you or not. They're either going to work for you on uh, Amazon or your iPad or Barnes & Noble or Borders or whatever. They cannot need an explanation. If they need an explanation, I failed, all right? So I call, but I call up my friend Jeff Spear, the photographer that I work with all the time, and I, I told him my concept. And so we put an ad on Craigslist for a very specific kind of hand model. And uh, after a few cranks, we actually found the right person. And this person was very um, pleased because they don't get a lot of work as a hand model. And so anyway, this was a freelance job. I sent it off to the art director, and he uh, gets back to me right away. And he says, marketing loves it. And the reason they love it is because it's yellow, and it has a hand on it. <laughs> and I said, well, that really works for me. <laughs> now, most of that story is bullshit. Uh, this is my hand. Um, and Jeff is a Photoshop whiz, and he added an extra finger there. And when you look really closely at it, those two fingers have the same fingerprint, blah, blah, blah. Book comes out, big success. Um, and Augustine gets an email from a fan, a woman in Phoenix, Arizona. And she says, when I walked into the bookstore, I burst into tears because I realized I wasn't alone. 
This is not a Photoshop trick, although I wish it was. <laughs> and of course, when I saw this, I thought, sister, where were you? when we were making this book cover. You don't go on Craigslist, I suppose. But of course, what I love most is the 30% off sticker, <laughs> which should say 30% more. Do the math. OK. Um, it gets harder and harder to do this with our squeezed budgets. But um, you, you do have to uh, be mindful that, you know, book jackets are pieces of paper that are wrapped around books. Now, I did, you know, I hinted at this with the David Sedaris naked, because it's the, literally a sort of peekaboo jacket. For um, Crichton's follow-up to Jurassic Park, he did this uh, kooky but very interesting novel about sexual harassment, which was called Disclosure. And I have to hand it to him, you know, he could have followed it up with the sequel to to Jurassic Park, which he eventually did, but not right away. Anyway, what I wanted this to do is print this cover on semi-transparent vellum. So the title itself is on the board of the book behind that. And you literally have to read between the lines of his name in order to read it. And when it sat on a shelf, it was great because the front would bow out just enough that it would really, really, um, it was just there and not there. And uh, this is like a conceptual graphic designer's wet dream. You know, uh, the, this is about naughty sexual shenanigans. And, you know, we're not seeing heaving boobs or, or anything like that on this. And so I, and Crichton loved this. And I have to really give him credit for that. Um, even more so is the idea of using a, a jacket that's clear acetate, which for Donna Tartt's The Secret History seemed to make perfect sense because it's kind of hard to see here, but um, these are about classical Greek scholars at a college in, in New Hampshire. And, and um, there's sort of, it sort of has one foot in the classical world and one foot in the now. And the, the, the way to sort of for us to, to kind of show that is to um, have the typography sort of in this modern font floating above a classical, classical image. And um, the, the material itself comes from the idea that if you go into an antiquarian bookshop, they have acetate over all the books. That's how they protect them. And so that's really what, what uh, brought that about. Um, but, um, it's always interesting to see. I mean, one has very, mostly what I deal with is uh, hardcover jacketed books. Um, I don't really have much to do or, or much of any control over the uh, paperbacks. And to just walk into a, you know, a, a stop and shop one day and to see uh, this just completely um, uh, jars one. Um, but, you know, what are you going to do? But uh, again, like, does, is this going to sell more copies than what I did? Um, and it's impossible to tell. It probably did, but it was only, you know, what, 11.35 or something like that or whatever it was. No, 6.99. 
um, it's perceived that there are different sensibilities for hardcover and paperback. I take issue with that, but um, these people obviously didn't. Um, another thing that, uh, idea that was brought up in school was, okay, you do a design and it's got various elements to it. And what you should try and do is start taking elements away and seeing, all right, if I take that away, does it still hold up? Does it still work? If it does, take something else away. And keep going until you simply can't take anything else away without destroying the character of the piece, which is basically a way of saying people tend to over-design things. Um, two examples of this are in the, the comic book realm. Um, I am a huge, huge Batman fan, and, and I could do a four-hour lecture on Batman that would make you want to slit your wrists. I'm not going to. But I was asked by Frank Miller to design his sequel to The Dark Knight Returns, which was called The Dark Knight Strikes Again. Now, I was a huge, huge fan of Mr. Miller, and uh, his, uh, his book, The Dark Knight Returns, became, largely became the basis for the amazing movie with Heath Ledger as the Joker, etc. This was going to be his new magnum Batman opus. Uh, this was about five years ago. And um, he didn't want to create any new art for it. He said, I've done an entire book's worth of art. I want you to take this and do something with the art inside that makes it unique. Now, the publisher is DC Comics. They are, they are huge. And basically, they like to keep everything in-house in terms of design. And, and now Frank is bringing me in. And they basically said, both to me and to him, they said, OK, Frank, if this is what you want, all right. But Chip is going to do what he does. And then you need to be OK with that, because we can't, we can't hire him to do a bunch of stuff that you're going to reject. And he was like, that's cool. All right. So um, there's this page in the book, um, which is a montage sequence of Batman's been completely beaten to shit. But he's uh, survived, and he's in the bat plane, and he's trying to get to Robin, basically, who is being also beaten to shit. And he can hear it all, but he, he can't see it. And he's trying to get there, and he's frantic. And the upper left-hand panel, to me, was always pretty cool and chilling. Um, it's probably harder to see here. But as I kept zooming in on it, um, it's really his eye and, and the desperation there. And usually Batman's eyes are white. You can't see them uh, in the comics. But um, Miller, of course, lets you see it. And, and um, I just thought, you know what? That's that's the cover, and so that's what I did uh, for Batman The Dark Knight Strikes Again. Now, this is also is a lesson in, I love to play with scale. Love it, love it, love it. There is big and there is small, and when you can contrast them, you can create something that's literally very dramatic. It's, it's hard not to. So um, all of these are little panels at the bottom from various parts of the, the comic book. Um, but really, what looms, obviously, is, is Batman. Frank Miller loved this. 
loved it. DC Comics hated it. We hate this. It's a Batman book. Where's Batman? We got a big blue eye. Where's Batman? So the tables were completely turned. And uh, frankly, so to speak, uh, he won. He basically had to bully them to say, look, you know, this is perfect for this book. This is what I want. This is it. And, and that's, that's the way it went out. But um, here, I mean, very, very rare that an author will go to bat for you the way he did for me against what amounts to this giant media corporation. Now, um, this is a similar situation for entirely different reasons. I'm a huge Peanuts fan, and as you heard, I, I put together a, a Peanuts retrospective right after Schultz had died, and I had the, the uh, permission of, of Schultz's widow, Jeannie, and his children. And then, uh, but it was an art book. It was not a biography. This was going to be written by a guy named David Michaelis, very serious journalist, who researched it for six years. And he said to me, I want you to do the jacket. And I said, OK, although I, interiorly I was thinking, how am I going to reinvent this? And so I decided, again, let's start stripping away at what Schultz does until we get to the essence of it, until we get to the core of it. And if, you know, if you're a Peanuts fan, you know what this is, and this is, this is why I think Schultz was a genius, was these five very simple little squiggles that create a life and create a world, and then using his uh, signature. So um, David loved this. Harper Collins, the, the publisher, loved this. In the meantime, after six years, Michaelis gives his 800-page uh, manuscript to Jeannie Schultz and the Schultz children for a courtesy read to see if there's any factual inaccuracy. They start to read it. They love it. Love it, love it, love it. Then they get to the midway point, and they not love it so much anymore. And then they get three-quarters of the way through. And what do you mean he had an affair? <laughs> this is St. Sparky we're talking about. By the end of it, they called their lawyers and they said, we want this stopped. We do not want this book to be published. Michaelis is a very smart cookie and he had enough legally in place to say, you can't stop it. If there are factual errors, we will fix them, but it's going to be published. What they could do was prevent any use of Schultz imagery on the front cover at all. At this point, Michaelis is beside himself and says to me, you know what, just bail, we'll figure it out. You know, I really appreciate it. And I said, no, I really want to stick with this. I think this is a great, great book about a great, great man. And what I decided to do was distill it even further, looking at the, the figure of Charlie Brown. And uh, basically, you can't copyright a black zigzag on a yellow background. And even though that looks like his handwriting, it's not. It's a commercial font called Comic Strip. And uh, that, was, that was the answer. And, and uh, David claims that he likes this one even better. I disagree. I like the other one. But um, this is the way the book 
came out. Um, again, this is something that I have to ask myself all the time. We published a scholarly work on blasphemy in the mid-90s, and to me, there was no question in my mind of what the image should be. Uh, this is, of course, Andre Serrano. This is Piss Christ, and, um, and no one had a, a problem with this. Like, this really, they all agreed. And, the, you know, the interesting thing about this, if, you, if you've never actually seen it in a museum or a gallery, it's actually extremely beautiful. And what killed me about the whole controversy was that Serrano was actually devout. And this, you know, he wasn't literally trying to pee on Christ. He, he, it was, there was a lot more thinking and conceptual stuff going on with it. So this came out and it was fine. Um, then I got a call to do what I was told would be my dream job to design the Bible. <laughs> and sure, why not? I love novels. So, this was a scholarly uh, translation by a guy named Richmond Lattimore, and I started to look at art, and, and uh, there's, a, of course, a zillion different ways that you could do this. At the time, um, I revisited Serrano's work, and he had started a series called the Morgue Series which was literally that. He got permission to be in a morgue in New York City as they were hauling the bodies in, and he would do their portraits. And there was one that I saw that I thought was just absolutely perfect. This is murder victim number five. And uh, I mean, he's dead, but he, he looks like he's alive and dead at the same time, which to me was uh, one of the main themes of the book. And again, weird art, half jacket, separation of type and state. And I thought, you know, they're never going to go for this in a million years. It was a, 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 an arm of FSG for Austraus and Giroux that was publishing this. But they're never going to go for it. But I know that this is right. And I'll send it to them. They'll reject it. I'll get a kill fee. And then we will all just move on. They, a miracle happened. They approved it, and uh, it helped, actually, that the author was dead. Um, <laughs> not God, but Richmond Lattimore. <laughs> and so he didn't really get a say. Uh, and so they decided, we think this is right, too, and this is what we're going to do. It was a total, complete disaster. The media was on this, like, mush huskies on a pork chop. Uh, you know, and it was all guilt by association. It was because this was by the guy that did Piss Christ, that no religious bookstores would carry it. None of the chains would carry it. Nobody carried it. I mean, and this was pre-Amazon, so that wasn't a, a, an issue either. And they, you know, it was, it was terrible. And uh, I felt bad. It got into every design competition imaginable, which helped me tremendously, but um, certainly not the author, or the, the publisher, and so that's not good. Um, and so then they want to give it a new life in paperback, 
and uh, which I don't blame them. They didn't want me to do anything with. And this is what they, uh, this is what they did. And it's an object lesson in this. Um, you know, there, there it is. And you're still showing a man who's being murdered and dying and whatever, but it's pretty now. And it's acceptable uh, because it's by a photographer who we've never heard of. And um, it was a pretty sobering lesson in, in uh, you know, trying to do too much. Okay, um, as you heard in the introduction, um, I was a huge fan of the official preppy handbook when it came out in 1980. Um, and uh, 30 years later, I got a Facebook friend request from somebody claiming to be Lisa Birnbach. And I freaked out because she was the original editor, author of the first book. And I wrote back and I said, oh my God, is it really you? And she wrote back to me and said, oh my God, is it really you? <laughs> and I wrote back to her and I said, oh my God, it's really us. <laughs> and so I said, uh, let's go to lunch. She lives in Manhattan. And uh, we went to lunch and at the end of the lunch, which was totally enjoyable, and lasted for hours. I said, all right, can I ask it? And she said, go ahead, everybody, everybody does. And I said, why on earth didn't you do the next preppy book? And she said, well, I've been asked many times and I never felt like the person was right or the circumstances or the publisher or, what, or whatever. And I said, well, I want you to think about it. 30th anniversary's coming up. I think you should do it. Um, it's a completely different world now, and yet, you know, preppies have to cope with it. I think, I think there'd be a real, a real audience. Long story short, uh, we, we get the project sold at my publisher at Knopf. And so now I have to start designing it. Um, and we couldn't figure out what to call it. I mean, this was, this was the natural thing, the official preppy handbook for the 20th century. Wake up, Muffy, we're back. Um, and the original, of course, had this whole plaid thing going on. So I'm trying to mimic that and not outright um, steal from it. But then I got the idea of um, doing like a low-res version of the plaid, which turns it digital. Uh, and again, that's very hard to see. It's too dark. But um, now we're playing with the title of 21st Century Preppy. Uh, I came up with a tagline, it's a whole new old world. Uh, this, you know, we want to uh, introduce Latin, uh, which we have to. And then finally, Lisa gets the brainstorm like, oh, no, 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 let's call it true prep. And so that sort of became the cover that we were going to, that we were going to use. And, I, I sort of liked it, but there just didn't seem to me to be enough here. There's not an, enough of a, of a, of a hook. It's, you've got your digital plaid and you've got the, the, the word and it looks sort of collegiate and athletic, but I don't know. But anyway, here's our cover, right? Now, this whole concept of, of uh, having fun, I mean, it, I do believe it's true. I started, well, what we decided was we needed a crest. We needed our own crest. 
So this, these are my notes. We had a fantastic illustrator named Randy Glass who does the stipple drawings for the uh, Wall Street Journal. Um, and so you know, this is me culling things together for him to draw. And so we have the D-ring belt that goes through it. You've got your polo shirt up there uh, and the, the fetishized oars. And, and I wanted the, the badminton birdie to actually to be a martini, but our editor said there was too much drinking in the book already. So, uh, and the symmetrical loafers. Um, but what I really got caught up with was, all right, the first book was about ducks, that everybody had ducks in their house. Um, not real ones, of course, but uh, the motif. We wanted to center on dogs, and more specifically, English terriers. And so what I wanted to do was take the whole concept of, of a heraldic lion from a crest and make it into a dog instead. Uh, this illustrator is great, and <laughs> so, uh, like wow, like hit it out of the park, wow. And so then we um, put it into a design with our motto, uh, and he fl oh, here he fleshes out the dog, and our motto of course is Latin spoken here. <laughs> and now I start thinking about, because you know, you know, book designers, we're obsessive. So I'm thinking about, all right, we got the jacket, and this is gonna be the first page. Let's think about like the binding, like if you, if you take the jacket off the book, what are you going to see? And that's what I really started to play with and have fun. And I loved the way he did this dog. I thought he did such a great job. I started thinking about, all right, let's do a really fun design for the binding under the jacket with the dog. And you know, when you take this and you make it symmetrical, there's just enough whimsy there. It's like, you know, one dog maybe get up like that, but two perfectly <laughs> symmetrical? <laughs> Whimsy. And then putting our, our uh, slogan underneath. And so I comped this up and I wrapped it around a book and I put that other jacket I showed you around it and I took it up to, to Lisa's office and I said, I've got something really fun to show you. And I took the jacket off and she looked at this and her eyes fell out of her head and she's like, this is the cover. This is, you know, it's too good to hide under the other thing which isn't doing enough as it is. And so this is, this is how the cover came about. And then, of course, we had to figure out, all right, so then what's underneath this, right? <laughs> and the answer, of course, was shoes. <laughs> so, um, and we had these custom made by Stubbs and Wooten of Palm Beach. Uh, which were very adorable that they did that for us. So um, once the pressure's off, you can start to, to design better, I think. Okay. Um, you know, the first idea that comes to your mind, you're usually told in school to discard. Maybe, I think. Sometimes it's right. Sometimes the first thing that pops into your head is the good thing. I was asked to redesign this poster by the... Um, Wolfsonian Museum in uh, Miami. It's a great graphic design museum. Graphic designers, if you're in Miami, in South Beach, and sober, you should go. <laughs> or even if you're not sober, um, get someone to take you. Uh, they were commissioning a bunch of designers 
to redesign the Four Freedoms by uh, Norman Rockwell. And what I decided was I wanted to re-envision this concept for now and about the idea of abusing these freedoms because I think that that's what we've been doing. And so I came up with this whole idea of like freedom isn't free, this is abuse of this freedom. And uh, you know, that's what happens when after the scene you just saw, um, this sort of rampant problem in America now. And this is what freedom from want means now and we have to do something about it. Okay, uh, I've had the great, great honor and fortune to work with John Updike over many years on his covers. And uh, his last novel uh, was, was this, Terrorist, and um, amazing, amazing, multifaceted guy, obviously. And with him, he was so prolific. There was like a book a year, and he had dabbled in typography in, in college, which is a problem, um, or could be. But he would do anything, he would do the gamut from like drawing the whole thing out with point sizes for the type that I was then supposed to make work to somewhere in between that, oh, I like this image, put it into a design that you create to once or twice we were able to do completely what we wanted to do. With this one, we are somewhere in the middle, and he gave me this image. This, um, this book is actually about a very similar thing to this, this kid that got arrested in, in Oregon this week, um, where you have this disgruntled kid who embraces Islam and decides he wants to be a terrorist. And um, I was like, well, that's a kind of cool image but I think we can do something more interesting with it. And you know, at, the, at the risk of being corny, you know, let's literally turn the world upside down here. Um, and he and Updike loved this. You know, this to him invigorated the whole concept of, at, you know, you're disoriented. You can sort of see what you're looking at, but you really have to kind of concentrate on it and look at it um, to really figure out exactly what's going on here. Um, this is something that I, I taught for, I taught uh, senior graphic design portfolio for six years at the School of Visual Arts in New York, and this is something I always tried to hammer home. The kids were very good, but they were style, style, style. They, they wanted to make cool looking stuff. And I'm not entirely against that, but you don't start with that. You start with the concept, you start with the idea. If the idea and the concept are good enough, you can then make it look good. Making it look good is the last thing you do. And, if, and if, you're, if you're good at this, you can do that. It's not hard. There's color. There's scale. There's all this kind of thing. Um, I, the first book of Oren Pomics I, I worked on is this novel, which, uh, which is truly astonishing and involves um, 16th century Turkish court painters, and there's all sorts of intrigue, and there's an illicit love affair, there's a murder, the narrator is dead from the get-go, um, and narrating from beyond the grave, etc., etc. So basically what you want to do, I think, is obviously we, we want to look at 16th century Turkish court paintings, um, but we want to present them in a way 
that um, will provide them a narrative that is applicable, applicable and relevant to what's going on in the book. And so here we see sort of the front and the spine. And what he really liked about this is that, um, you know, red figures prominently in it. The, the, the robe of, of this guy is very, very bright red. But my name in red, my name is red is in blue. And so then you start to get contrasting mixed signals, basically, which I'm going to talk a little bit more about soon. Um, and, you know, there's, so this is literally four different paintings that have been pulled apart and put back together in order to give you this feeling of, all right, this is the milieu of the book, but it's, be, it's been written now, and it's a new take on the whole thing. Um, there's a fine line between minimalism and just sheer boredom, uh, and it's very, very easy to cross. Uh, you may or may not have heard of this book, which came out last year. For me, it was a great um, thrill to be able to literally design the last first edition of Nabokov, and there was a lot of controversy controversy as to whether we should have published this at all. It was basically 138 note cards that he was making at the time of his death that was going to be his last great epic novel, and then it didn't get beyond the cards. Um, but not surprisingly, the story is about a writer who is systematically erasing himself, destroying himself, killing himself. And uh, this became the question. And the answer to me became pure simplicity. Um, and it was my major surprise to myself was, wow, you mean you didn't do this in 23 years? This is the first time? It's the first time. Um, which is basically just fading to black, period. Um, and this took a good bit of um, convincing not to Dmitry Nabokov, uh, the, his Nabokov's son, and the, of course the heir to the estate and all that. He was pretty much on board with it, although he's in Montreux, in, you know, half alive, and, and uh, I can't deal directly with him. I have to deal with his agent, Uber agent Andrew Wiley, who um, his problem was that, uh, well, it says that it's by Vladimir Nabokov, and people won't know who you're referring to. Um, to which, of course, I thought, that's ridiculous. I mean, who else could it be? It, it's, uh, and the torrent of publicity uh, uh, around this ensured that people would be aware of what they were seeing. And, and Dimitri actually fought for it, which was great. And so it didn't really change too much from that. Um, and then complexity. Complexity is, um, is tricky because it's complex. And it's, it's hard to do, and I think it's hard to do well. I, I think one good example is, um, frankly, my favorite overall design for a novel that I was ever privileged to do, which is for Haruki Murakami and the Wind Up Bird Chronicle. Now, at first, this is an egregious... Um, uh, 
I am showing and telling here. I mean, it's the wind-up bird chronicle, and there's, you know, there's a freaking wind-up bird right there. Uh, but I'm trying to abstract it just enough so that um, you get it. You can only figure out what it is if you have the title and the image together. When you spread the jacket out, then you get the whole thing, literally. So this is the front and the spine and the back. Where the complexity comes in is that really just for perverse fun and because the novel itself is so complex, I hired my friend and genius cartoonist Chris Ware to try and imagine what the inner workings of this bird would be. And um, so he did this this mechanical drawing of what it should be. And then what we did was we surprinted in a gloss metallic uh, lamination just the inner workings over it. So, but it's, it's subtle. If you, you can only see it by holding it in the light. But if you take the jacket off the book, then you get the inside. And, um, and again, you know, I, I actually, like he was, he was worried that this wasn't complex enough. He thought it was too simple. And uh, then he made it even crazier um, to get to this to, to get to this to this point. But um, uh, to me, it was it was a real honor to work on it, and with especially with him. Okay, um, James Elroy is our sort of Mickey Spillane of today, and I've done his books forever. Um, I'm only gonna concentrate on a, a series of three paperback covers I did for him. We were redoing his backlist. The lesson here is, um, is this, stay alert. Um, one of the great joys and inspirations for me of living and working in New York City is that I'm constantly, I've got the whole place at my beck and call to go to MoMA, you know, go to galleries, look at artwork, see people who are, you know, drawing, photographing all the time. And I was at, you know, a photo show, and I saw the work of this guy named Tom Allen, and um, it completely blew me away. Now, again, at the time, I'm working on this. Uh, this is an, a, a, an old novel of James's, um, and that's the situation. There's two rival cops in the Los Angeles Police Department, and I see on the wall this. Now, I'm not sure you can, uh, it's clear what that is, but basically what Tom Allen does is he takes pulp paperbacks from the 40s and 50s, he cuts them up, and he folds them out to make the characters look like they are literally popping out of the books, and then re-photographs them. And to me, like that is the book, I mean, there's actually remarkably little manipulation going on here, aside from cutting them out and folding them and putting the book down on its back. And I talk to the gallery owner, talk to the artist. Sometimes they're amenable to this, sometimes they are not. They were. And, uh, you know, it became this sort of book covers coming alive thing. Um, which James loved, and, and this was a whole new look for him. It's, it's hard when you've been working for a certain author for like over 20 years, and you still have to kind of make it look fresh. Um, this then, the uh, Tom shot spe specially for us, as he did this one, 
um, Suicide Hill, and, and the books are being stacked now, and the characters are being folded out. He, his work is truly, truly amazing and cool. Uh, again, going into a gallery, I've got to, you know, and I'm working on 10 to 20 projects simultaneously from every kind of stage, from I just got the manuscript to I'm going to watch it on press next week. So, again, Marie Ponceau, poet, writes a book called Easy. She's in her 80s. It's about things, frankly, not being so easy at all. And then I see this picture on the wall um, of this guy who photographs flowers and vases that he shoots, bullet throughs, shoots bullets through at the bottom. But the flower, of course, hasn't collapsed yet. So you've got this you know, air of like, oh, it's easy and perfect when you're sort of being destroyed inside. Um, this is a very recent book that's just out now, Oliver Sacks. I've done his uh, stuff forever, and his new book is about not only how eyesight works in the brain, but also the fact that he goes to the eye doctor and is starting to have macular degeneration, and how he feels about this and blah, 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 blah. So um, we want to start. The solution always lies in the problem. If you can define the problem well enough, that will help you find your solution. And this, to me, seems so obvious, almost so obvious that I, that I wasn't going to do it. But again, you know, sometimes your first idea is the best idea. Eye charts. Um, start, start, you know, researching eye charts on the wonderful wide world of the web. And I loved that this one started with an O. Usually, they start with an E. And I love that it was black with white lettering. So then I set this up. Um, and now the danger here is that, you know, some smart aleck is going to say, oh, it looks like O liver sacks. <laughs> and all it takes is one douchebag on the sales force to say that. <laughs> and it can screw up an entire concept. Uh, but anyway, so we're, I'm not done yet. Um, so now you set this up, but now we have to make it so that you can still read it, but now there's a problem. And um, OK, so that's working. And now I want to tweak the color just a little bit to make it unique. And so we'll make it a very, very deep blue. So this goes off to Oliver and his assistant. They love the concept. They love the type. They do not love the color or frankly, the lack thereof. Um, they basically said, look, you know, this book isn't entirely down. It's, you know, we don't want it to be like a, a real, you know, sad thing. There's lots of interesting stuff in it and we don't want to turn people off by making it look door. Uh, so liven it up. So, you know, at this stage of the game, if I can save this concept, I will do this. And, uh, this did it for them, and it, and it did it for our sales force and, and what have you. There's all sorts of levels of hierarchy of, of people who have to approve this stuff, but this made it through the gauntlet. It is out now, and uh, these are two shots I took in New York in the East Village with my uh, iPhone, which is kind of shitty. It's just a stage two iPhone. It's not a stage four, but um, this is the St. Mark's Bookshop, and I have to say, you know, they were right. Um, 
it, it really holds its own. That's the window of the St. Mark's Bookshop, and that's inside. And I did not manipulate these in any way. I did not. <laughs> I could have. But um, this is exactly how they had the display and the whole bit. That's one of my favorite bookshops in New York. OK, home stretch. Um, I'm often asked uh, at schools, like, <clears throat> Mr. Kidd, do you like design your own book jacket? Like, if you, if you write a book, would you design the jacket for your own book that you wrote? And if you wrote a book, would you design the jacket for your own book that you wrote? If you, if you wrote this book, would you design your own jacket? Do you design your own jackets if you write the book? And then do you design the jacket? Do you? Sort of. Um, I, what I really do is orchestrate. Uh, so my second novel is called The Learners, and it's, it's basically it's about the Stanley Milgram experiments at Yale in the early 60s, obedience to authority, which I've been obsessed with ever since Psych 101. And um, no one's ever written a novel about it, so I took the time and did so. And, and as you may or may not know, it's about people who are being tricked into thinking that they're shocking other people to death on the other side of the room simply because somebody of authority is telling them to do so. Um, what I wanted to do was make something that was a scream, basically, sort of um, my own version of, of Monk's The Scream, um, but very much removed from that. At the time, I was the editor of a graphic novel called Black Hole by Charles Burns. This is a page from that. Charles is a good friend, and I wanted to get him to work on this jacket. So what I did first was use some swipe from the book. Um, I wanted somebody to look, you know, of great alarm and distress. And so there's that. And I, uh, it was good. The, the jacket was going to be a separate piece of paper. The red, what you see, is a separate piece of paper. And this was the first thing I did. I don't like the asymmetry asymmetry here, so I swapped out my name with the title. So I show this to my uh, publisher, who is Scribner, and they say, oh my god, we love it, you're done. And I said, no, um, this is great, but it's basically now I'm going to hire the illustrator, hire somebody to do the lettering for real, and um, it's going to look like this, only a lot better. So I get a hold of Charles Burns. Now, this is the thing that I sent him. I'm a terrible, terrible draftsman, as you can see, but I am a narcissist, and I want this person to be me. <laughs> so um, there's that. So I send that to him, and I also send him some photo reference, <laughs> uh, just to help. And he's a genius, so he does a pencil drawing, and that's great. And so then he goes to ink. And that's terrific. And when I turn the book over, I want the eyes to be closed. So he does that. Now, um, I also want him to do the shock machine. And this is reference to that. And then he makes a sort of generic sort of front of that. And of course, the needle's pointing all the way to the right because the vaults are going all the way up. And then I uh, got my friend, the aforementioned Chris Ware, to do the lettering of the title. Uh, one of the characters in the book is actually based on Chris and does this beautiful hand lettering like this. This is all done by hand, um, which I just love. And then we put the whole thing together. 
and there it is. And, and so it is basically what I said it was going to be. It's, it's what I had before, only it's better. Uh, but again, when you take the jacket off, you get hopefully what you're not expecting. And, and I'm a big proponent of also of this, um, this tenant um, mixing signals. I think there's a lot to be said for it. Uh, so that, you know, obviously it's not a mouth, it's the vault going all the way to the, to the top. And I, this concept, mixing two images together, I use a lot in my work, but I won't bore you with that. Um, and I'm going to end with this, which seems to be appropriate. Every couple of years, we move our offices to different places in the building at Knopf Publishing Random House. And um, basically what everybody does is they designate an area called the free book area. And so everybody gets rid of like the stuff that they, that they decide that they, okay, I've had three copies of this, so I'll get rid of one of them. And um, there's this feeding frenzy, total feeding frenzy. And so people get rid of stuff, but then they go get somebody else's stuff because that's cool, and they want the other person's stuff, so nobody gets rid of anything. <laughs> so during the last move, I saw this lonely little paperback on a shelf from the 50s. And I looked at it, and I didn't really realize what I was looking at. Um, and then I sort of figured it out, and I, I couldn't believe how amazingly brilliant it was. This is a real, actual paperback book cover from the 50s. It's a penguin, or no, it's a, a, a pocket paperback, pocket books. And um, the designer is sadly uncredited, uh, but it is, I thought, sort of a work of genius. Now, the name of the book, the title of the book is You Shall Know Them, and the author is their course. But what the designer has done is they've encrypted it with a subliminal message. <laughs> so that when you see this, you feel strangely compelled <laughs> to pick it up and start to read it. I mean, you don't know why. <laughs> I still don't. But um, that, to me, was the epitome of what a great book designer does. And I will leave you with that. Thank you very much. Or if you just want to raise your hand and shriek, that's fine too. Yes? How much time do you spend when you do the topography of the books? Um, is, is, is everything original type? Or do you ever go with conventional typefaces? I, well, I use machine set type all the time. I mean, with, with my, occasionally I will try and get type hand drawn or I will customize the type myself. But um, there's so many amazing typefaces available that unless there's some compelling reason to do that. The thing about I've found 
is that it's very hard to find cursive computer fonts that don't look like cursive computer fonts, and which is why I had the learners drawn out that way by hand. That's simply, you cannot do that on a computer. I mean, I think you could in Illustrator or something like that, but why? I mean, it's, you know, you could probably do it faster pen on paper. At least I know Chris could. Yes? Uh, yeah, um, on a lot of these lectures I do, mostly at schools, I make an effort to show a lot of rejected work. I didn't do that so much this time, um, basically because I wanted this to be a little bit different. Um, but I get rejected, I get stuff rejected a lot, all the time, and actually it makes for good stories and all of that. Sometimes you're able to save it, and sometimes you're not. Um, you, you hope that because we're all in book publishing that, you know, we're maybe a, you know, a little open to interesting, challenging ideas, and sometimes they are and sometimes they're not. Um, but it, it rarely works to fight for something. Like by the time they get back to you, like there'd be no point in me calling up David Sedaris and say, oh, come on, let's go for the briefs. No, because by the time that's all decided, it's a fait accompli. Um, the one thing I didn't say because it would have complicated the story too much is that that whole dry thing, that was originally my uh, design for the hardcover. It got rejected because it, they thought it looked too scary and it looked like, you know, a horror book. And they went with something else. It wasn't so great. Book didn't do so well. And they came back to me and said, okay, we'll use your idea for the paperback. That very, very rarely happens. So I don't even bring that up. It's, I treat it I, more as a pure thing. But um, yeah, I mean, it, you know, for better or worse, after 24 years, they will reject stuff if it's not working for them whoever they are. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you end up using photography more often than illustration or just a type solution? And what's the process like? I, I do use a lot more photography than illustration. Um, early on, that just seemed to make a lot more sense to me. Like with the, I think one of the most high profile instances of that was all the pretty horses. That here you have this novel about the American West and we're getting this abstracted photograph of a horse. What does this mean? Um, I think I found, and I have found, that a photograph just seems more real than if I got somebody to draw that, even if I gave them that photograph as a reference and say, okay, do a painting of it or do a drawing of it, it's not gonna add anything. It's not gonna add any authenticity um, and then the opposite would have been true with my own book. I think putting a photograph of me freaking out is not going to send the right message the way that 
a Charles Burns drawing of that would do. And it's, it's very intuitive stuff. But, I, but for the most part, um, illustrating fiction with photography was a big, big part of what we on the Knopf staff were doing in the 90s that, I mean, we didn't invent it, but a lot of people then were doing it. Yes. Um, I was kind of interested in the, I think it was the Kessler book and the Burroughs book, and I think even Batman, there were periods. <laughs> and I wondered if those were your idea or they also appeared on the title page and the promotional materials, or was this just your idea? I have a period fetish, and I acquired it from my friend Chris Ware, and I can't really explain it. It somehow, to me, I think it's actually, if I'm wrong, it's a very 19th century sort of thing. Um, it f somehow, it just literally makes more of a statement. And I don't know how to say it other than that. Some authors let me get away with it, and some don't. I think, for instance, on dry, it works. Um, I, th I think it works better than if it wasn't there. Um, and, and, but you know, when you start to do stuff like that, that's actually an editorial decision. It's not a design decision, and authors and editors can come to resent it and say, nice try, lose the periods. Uh, so some do, some don't. Yes? Do I design my own personal greeting cards? Well, uh, um, only obscene ones for very good friends. Um, this is about as much as I could say on that. Uh, not really. Yeah. As a designer and a comic Uh, graphic novels. Um, I, could, I could bore you with talking about graphic novels for quite some time. Um, I've been publishing them steadily at Pantheon Books uh, for the last 10 years. Um, the first one was Chris Ware's Jimmy Corrigan, The Smartest Kid on Earth. Uh, since then, and, and of course, when I first started at, at uh, Knopf, Pantheon, which was part of us, was just starting to do Mouse by Art Spiegelman, which I was a big fan of in college. So um, that was kind of the start of it. And then, th then it was sort of dormant for a while. And then we published this guy named Ben Catcher. And uh, that started it all up again. And, and the Chris Ware book and Dan Klaus really kind of blew up and, and in the best possible way and got all this recognition. And, uh, and then we published Persepolis by Marjan Satrapi, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So we were very sort of selective and we don't have any great agenda in terms of, oh gee, there's no graphic novel on this list. We need to get one. If there is, great. If there isn't, there isn't. So as opposed to somebody like uh, Fanographics or Drawn and Quarterly, where that is what they do, and if they're not publishing continuously, they're in trouble. Uh, so I'm straying from the question. But I think um, I grew up loving comics. I think the whole term graphic novel is frankly kind of pretentious and 
not what I would have adapted, but that's what people seem to understand and accept. So, um, you know, I've just written a Batman graphic novel for DC Comics that's being drawn now. Uh, to me, it's comics, but it's going to be basic. When it finally comes out, it will be marketed as a as a graphic novel. Yes. At the very beginning, you mentioned uh, media. Have you worked in any other media? Uh, well, I, other than print, no. Um, I've done other things. I mean, I've I've just did a movie print campaign, and I did a a thing for Time Magazine that's just out this week, and et cetera, et cetera. I've, done, I've certainly done graphic design outside of books, but in terms of other media like motion graphics or something like that, not, not really, no. And, and where do you see the novel going with all the new uh, media that is around and devices? Uh, Richard Branson just announced uh, iPad, only magazine is <coughs> available starting tomorrow. It's, it's a incredibly large, unwieldy subject. I think it's still in its infancy. I think um, I sort of saw this firsthand with the True Prep book that there was a lot of pressure to make it into an e-book, which we did, but it's not in any way a satisfying thing. Um, but we, we just needed to make it available. And none of the various devices agree with each other. So the Nook has its own limitations. The, the Kindle has the most limitations. I'm, the Kindle is the worst um, from a design point of view because they've literally made it so, it's still in its infancy. Uh, it has three typefaces. My, the Learners uses 30 typefaces. And just to, you know, make myself crazy, I bought the learners on a Kindle to look at it, and it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. I thought at least they would have scanned in the typography <coughs> lessons that are very specific to those typefaces. No, not so much. Didn't bother. Um, so it's, it's all being figured out, and I think what's, what's weird is that an MP3 is an MP3. You can play that on any number of different devices. But, a, but an ebook, you know, you've got the iPad, which can do amazing things with that book, The Elements, which should definitely be seen. That's really cool. But, you know, it's going to look different on a Kindle. It's going to look different on a Nook. It's going to look different on a Sony reader. Pages will, um, what was the thing on, with the poetry? Um, I mean, it's ridiculous. They're not, they're not paying attention. And, uh, and they don't care. And that's the sad thing. Right. They're saying it's poetry. So what? We're, we're working on the, you know, we, we want everybody to buy Bush's memoirs, you know, or whatever. Um, um, so, and, and at this point, it accounts for less than 5% of all book sales. Now, I'm not saying that's not going to change. It probably is, and it will probably be more. But at this, you know, it's not the same as the music industry. And so much of the media's 
attention is focused on it, that, um, uh, you know, I don't know. A lot of it remains to be seen. And I have to say, at first, we at Random House were really sort of irritated that Random House wasn't like jumping into this. And now we're actually sort of glad because they're not ready. They're not, they're not ready. Like to, to do a straightforward novel that you would buy and not keep, I can understand that. Or, or a textbook or, a, or an, you know, some reference thing that's going to change anyway. I can understand that. But for, for something like, like my whole reason for being is to make books into physical objects that you want to own and keep. So I'm just glad that, that they do want covers for these things. And I think they need them. You need a face for this thing. But, um, but I, you know, I'm a, in that sense, I'm a materialist. Yes. Musically as a singer, um, we uh, the sort of short answer is, um, I I think, first of all, writing. I've written two novels. I think writing is designing with words, and the goals are very similar. And you're taking these elements that, in and of themselves, mean nothing. Um, Twenty-six letters that are basically abstract shapes that, in and of themselves, don't mean anything. But if you put them in the right combinations you can create everything in the mind of the person who's perceiving them. Um, and you can send them a message, and that's what you're trying to do with graphic design. Music is designing with sound. And, and you, know, you can design with just sound, or you can combine the sound with certain kinds of words to create a certain sensation in the person that's listening. Um, so as somebody who's dabbled in this, I find, that, I find that interesting. And again, it's the whole mixing, singles thing, mixing signals thing, where you have very sad music and the lyrics are very happy, or the opposite. Um, that's, inter that's interesting to me. But again, it's very, very intuitive. And, and um, there's a zillion different influences that go, that go into it. Yes? Uh, so, how to deal with designer's block. Um, I, I use what I call the crossword puzzle method. Um, I'm a big crossword puzzle fanatic, and especially for the New York Times, and, and you know, Monday is really, really, really easy. And Tuesday's a little less easy. Wednesday's somewhere in between. Thursday gets harder. Friday and Saturday, you need a mind that can bend spoons in order to finish them. Um, and when you're doing a Friday or a Saturday puzzle, you want to start early in the day. And, uh, you know, hopefully you'll get a couple of ins of things that you know and you start here and there and you go through the clues and the clues are trying to be extremely clever. And, and you have to decode the clues and blah, blah, blah. And then you sort of, you, maybe you spend 10, 20 minutes with it. You get as far as you can. 
you put it away. Then you go to work, or you go do whatever you're going to do, or go to the gym or something. And then a couple of hours later, you'll come back to it. And after you've been doing it this for a while, certain answers will start to make themselves evident to you. Design block is the same way. Now, people don't always have the luxury of time. Books, that is one of the luxuries we have, because the, 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 the cycle of a book is much, much longer than a magazine or, God forbid, a newspaper. So, you know, if I'm blocked on the design of something, um, I will, you know, give it a few tries. I will read the manuscript. And um, there were a lot of steps before the Jurassic Park thing that I left out, just for sake of brevity. But um, we, we, had, we commissioned a painting of what the dinosaur skin might look like. And it was real close up, and it looked, I mean, if you knew what it was for, it looked kind of cool. But you put the word Jurassic Park above it, and so you've got this abstract thing. Like back then, nobody knew what a Jurassic was. And that, so it's Jurassic Park, I don't know what that means. And now I'm looking at this really weird texture. This doesn't mean anything to me. Even though it was born of a concept that made perfect sense, the execution did not. So, um, all right, so now we scrap that. Now let's go on to the next thing. And uh, that's when I went and got that book. So, um, you know, it was really drilled into our heads that the, the solution to a problem lies into defining that problem in the right way. And if, you know, if you can't define it the right way the first time, you try it again and you try it again. And sometimes you don't get there. But, um, and, and the other thing is, which is completely outside all of this, you know, again, I, I feel very privileged to live and work in New York City where there's so much stimulation and there's so, you know, I could go out and walk around the block and see like 10 zillion different images that, that are going to like mix everything up in my head to, to try and look at stuff fresh again. So those are the various techniques that I use. Oh, yes, sure. Sure.